Welcome, everyone. Welcome back to Planet SciComm. We've been a little bit on a hiatus. Uh, I'm Sarah Yo, and my co-hosts, Jason McDermott and Patrick Vidot, are with me today. Say hello. 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 <laughs> so bossy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we also have a special guest today. We have Dr. Bruce Kirchhoff. Um, and so I will let Dr. Kirchhoff introduce himself. Bruce, welcome to the show. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. Well, I'm a, a botanist. I've had a long career in plant morphology and development. Near the end of that career, I got more and more interested in scientific communication. Wrote, have written a book on that now, have a website and uh, a blog, and have been teaching scientific communication both at some classes in my university. Even though I'm retired, I've been invited into some classes and also through some professional societies. So I'm really excited to be here and to talk to you about what's new in scientific communication. Awesome. I am uh, very remiss in that I didn't actually say what university you are from. So you are from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, just to make it easy if anybody needs to find you later. Um, yes. Yeah. So let's dive in. Um, I feel like I should let Patrick and Jason ask a question, but I'm not going to right now. Uh, oh, so I, I want to know. <laughs> no, do it. No, go for it. I want to know. I want to know um, how you got to the point of deciding to write this book. Yeah, definitely. I know long career in botany doesn't always lead to writing a book about scientific. Maybe it does. I don't know. I don't have a career in botany, but um, I'm curious how this came about. Well, it actually came about through offering workshops. I'm a long-term member of the Botanical Society of America and I've been offering workshops through them for a, quite a long time on a number of different aspects of teaching. Mm. And for a few years, I was offering workshops on scientific communication. <clears throat> the publisher of the book, um, one of their representatives happened to see on the botanical website that there was a course, I was a workshop I was offering on scientific communication at a workshop. And they approached me and said, would you like to write a book on scientific communication? And I said, yes, I oh. would actually. <laughs> Actually, yes. That's great. And so um, that's how it happened. I love the publisher. It's um, Kabi. It's a UK publisher. They're a nonprofit. All of the work, all of the profits that they do goes to developmental work in Africa. So I'm really happy to be doing working with them and not one of the big major publishers that take mm -hmm. all the money and give it to their investors or their CEO. It, of course, means that they don't have quite the distribution that the big names have, but I'm just really delighted to be working with them. Sure. Yeah. So that was how the book came about. But I was wondering because I uh, started looking into some stuff before we started talking and I'm hoping we can go back to that a bit. But I was wondering how your interest in science communication developed to the point that you were giving these presentations. Well, I, I'm not sure that there's a coherent story there. I, That's okay. We're not coherent. I was going to say we, none we, of our stories none of are us, very none of coherent. Us have actually, coherent join stories. the club. <laughs> I, I guess it comes back to a growth mindset. I have a very strong growth mindset. I've always been working on myself, and even now in retirement, I've got things that I'm working on that are really about self improvement. They tend to be, you know, um, retirement types of things: skiing and playing pickleball. But, nice. uh, but also both very fun. Yep. Both are wonderful. And <clears throat> so I continued to work on my teaching. I just 
continued to get better and better at teaching. And I won some pretty big in my state um, and some national teaching awards. And I started, I had always been kind of frustrated with the conference, conference talks I would hear, and especially the longer lectures that I would hear at my university. I get lost in them very often. I couldn't follow what they were saying because they would give these long introductions and I could follow all of that because it was all background stuff I knew. And then they would go blah, blah, blah. And then they would be into the technical details. And the little blah, blah, blah was the really important part that you needed to know to understand yeah. what problem they were working on. <laughs> and it would go by so fast. And so I just got very frustrated with it and said, well, I, I can do better than that. And so I tried to work on <clears throat> teaching some workshops on this, at mostly at Botanical Society. So I say I'd been teaching workshops on teaching there for a number of years and I kind of switched over to doing some workshops on scientific communication. Did we say what the name of the book is? I, I've no, already- we didn't girl, yet. We didn't, oh my gosh. We, no, not oh. yet. Yes, Jason, wanna do the honors? Uh, yeah, the book, which was published in 2021, it's available uh, in multiple locations. I know it's available on Amazon because I am uh, currently going to buy a copy, um, is Presenting Science <laughs> Concisely. And uh, again, as Bruce said, it's Cabby Press, which now makes me feel better about buying the Kindle mm -hmm. version that I was yeah. going to buy because it's kind of like you're doing a donation too, huh? Yeah. I get a tiny bit out of the Kindle um, book. I think they, you know, that's really Amazon who put that together. Cabby yeah. didn't have anything directly to do with the Kindle version. So yeah, that'd be better sense. to buy the paperback. Then. If you wanted to make yeah. a donation to Cabby, it's better to buy the paperback. <laughs> okay, good. Good to know. Good to know. Um, and we will link uh, the book in the show notes as well as uh, the website presentingscienceconcisely.com and um, Bruce's YouTube channel as well, where you can find videos uh, related to scientific communication. So, so I have I have a question, or rather, I wanted to you to to comment on this. A, a great quote that I got out of uh, your first chapter is um, this book is about uncovering parts of yourself that you had to shut down so that you become a scientist. And I thought that was really interesting because I think that um, I, I'd be really interested to hear more about that. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm interested in, in you know reading the book, but where does that come from? Does that come from your own personal experience? Have you seen scientists? I mean, I can talk about my own experience and how that's true, but I'd be interested to hear from you. Yeah, it's personal experience. And I think I talk about this in the book. I have a little short story. And then, then the story is that I, my undergraduate degree was a very general degree. I graduated in um, 1975 from the University of Michigan. And in those early 70 years at the University of Michigan, they had a degree called the Bachelor of General Studies. Hmm. And there were basically no requirements for the Bachelor of General Studies other than that half of your classes had to be at an upper level and only half of them could be at a lower level. So you couldn't get through taking all introductory classes the whole time you were there. That was the only distribution requirement. Hmm. And that was my degree. I made my own degree up and um, took in that time, I took a lot of history of art. I was one course away from having a major in history of art. I took a good deal of mathematical philosophy, logic and those kinds of things. Um, I took some mathematics. And I, had, I ended up uh, dropping out of school and um, got, didn't know really what I was doing, dropped out for one semester, 
did some odd jobs around town, came back and started with uh, my love from high school, which was biology, and then pursued after that. Uh, still a Bachelor of General Studies, but biology courses, got a master's in biology, and then went on for a PhD at Botany of Duke. Well, in that process of looking at where I would go for my PhD, I interviewed at the University of Michigan because, you know, you get attached to a school and you have friends there and you want to stay around and this stuff. So um, I asked the question during the inter one of my interviews of could I continue my studies of history of art while I was there? And it was a rather dull, 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 dull what's that word? Dow Dower. 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 Dower professor, a very, yeah. turned out a very famous professor, a very famous professor <laughs> in his area, um, who you can imagine kind of frowning at me and saying, no, that wasn't really possible to do that. Um, so I, I mean, it was also pretty naive of me to think that there would be time to do anything yeah. else besides your graduate work. But uh, that kind of said, well, you know, this artistic side of you um, that I had had since high school, I had a very unusual experience in high school and really emphasized that, that artistic side in, a, in addition to the uh, scientific side of me, which was perhaps my home base originally. Um, and I, could, I, could, I couldn't pursue that. I wouldn't be able to pursue that in, in graduate work. And so, you know, I think that, that those sides, and if you had any spiritual sides too, you were interested in anything of meditation, meditative ways as I was through most of these times, you know, there just wasn't, there wasn't a place for that stuff in um, graduate work. So that's where that, that's where the quote yeah. came from, certainly for me. And I don't, as you said, Jason, I think other people have the same similar experiences. There are pieces, parts of themselves that you shut out to, to do this work. And having an outlet of scientific communication is an art form. I mean, it is art, absolutely. And it's a way of getting that art back into your work and still making it your work, still making it science. Isn't it somewhat yeah. interesting that some of the quotes that we hang on to and the factoids that we hang on to about the scientists that are perhaps the most known in the world, let's take Einstein, for instance. What do you like to do? Play his violin. <laughs> and so, you know, going through this crucible of grad school does require that focus, but also to shut those parts down, I feel like you really need to reactivate them to become a better complete scientist. But it, it is kind of a bummer that those have to go by the wayside for several years so that you can actually write a dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting when I, when I uh, talk about science communication to different audiences, I often, you know, I'll, I'll give them examples of like, oh, you could try this or you could, you could do this or you could bring art into your science this way. And then I, I've really started to come up with a, with a um, caveat, which is like, I'm speaking from a, a position of privilege, right? I, I have made it mm -hmm. to a certain point where I did shut down those things and I didn't kind of stray out of the box that much. And now I'm able to. So, you know, keep that in mind as you're developing, because I don't think it's something that is maybe an easy or uh, successful path for for younger scientists to to be doing lots of different things. Um, it's oftentimes seen as uh, extraneous, like you said, or, um, or, or, you know, leading you away from what you really need to be doing. Yeah, Jason, I think that's exactly right. I think that for young scientists, it's dangerous to do too much outside of their 
um, of their discipline. I think scientific communication is an exception to that. I think that you can treat it as an art form and really learn how to tell a good story as a scientist and still advance your career. And in fact, I think it really helps to, if you can tell yeah. a good story to advance your career, because you're going to get up there, you know, as a young scientist interviewing for jobs, and they're going to want to understand your research. They're not going to want to know the same things that your committee knows. They're going to want to know the significance of your work. What's it really mean to them? Well, that's part of telling a good story. So I, I really think that scientific communication is an example. And that's why I say in the book, it's about re refining those parts of yourself through this scientific communication storytelling venue. I'm so glad you said that. Um, I was going to respond to Krusty, Jason, and, and Patrick about this, actually. In the... Hey, what's that you say, Sarah? What? In, in that I think it's becoming more common that, at least at the graduate student level, when you're in your graduate training in science, that you recognize that these types of skills, these softer skills, I'm doing air quotes here for all of us who can't see me and can only hear me, but right, these softer <laughs> skills are really important to advancing that, that career in science because so much of what we do as just as human beings in society is communicating, right, with other people, with funders, with scientists in other disciplines, with lay audiences, with students through teaching. Um, and so I, I do think there are more graduate students getting interested in this and bringing their whole selves to their graduate work, right, and to their science. And I think that helps, too, with the image of scientists as, um, or humanizing the image of scientists, right? right, because no longer are we, hopefully, trending in this direction, but no longer are we seen as kind of the like older white man in in the lab in the white lab coat right but there are a whole there's a whole diversity of scientists and what scientists look like and and who can be a scientist um that again is sort of wrapped up in conversations around like equity and inclusion right and accessibility but i do think science communication can be a really important part of this um and so you know, I, I am really excited, Bruce, that you said that because I, I agree that it is completely part, of, it should be part, right, of your education in science or your graduate training. Right. I think you're exactly right. I mean, our connection with the public needs to be a human connection. We talk a lot about in scientific communication and in miscommunication about or misinformation in the sciences, but talk about how to counter misinformation. And I think what a lot of that discussion misses is the fact that people trust people. It's not people trust facts, you know, and there's lots of evidence to show that they, people are not moved by the facts, but people trust people. And so if, they, if that's really true, if that's the core of what's going on in scientific communication, you've got to bring yourself to that communication. That's the basic bedrock message of, of my book. Bring yourself, find ways to bring yourself forward in your scientific communication. And now there are some techniques you can use to help you do that, but that's ultimately what you want to do. And so despite my, uh, as Sarah says, crusty outlook, <laughs> I do definitely, at, so I work in industry and what, after you have that degree, probably the best thing that you can bring to an interview is those soft skills. And so if you've developed without them, you will not go far. But 
I also wanted to respond to what Bruce just said. Um, what are some of the techniques that you can work on to get there, to be the person that people outside of science look to? So, you know, something that is not in the book, but I think is very important is improv. Mm. I've done a lot. Mm. I've done a lot of improv, both short form and long form. I like real. I really like long form storytelling improv. I've also done a good deal of storytelling. I think that the thing that's more accessible to the scientists, though, is improv, because you can go and you can take a course and someone will guide guide you through the different kinds of exercises and you can get used to thinking on your feet if you're very brave, you can actually do something in front of an audience, we'll give, which will give you that kind of experience. But I really, you know, if, if a scientist wanted to do something that was both very relaxing and really educated them in the kind of skills that they need to do, be a good communicator, I would say, go do, go do some improv. Whatever, they, whatever you can find in your town, go do, go do can, that. Can I, uh, now, that can that's I... a hard sell, I know. No, well, can I just address, ask? I think Sarah just came up with a research idea. No, I, so one of the things I was thinking as Bruce was saying, this is like one of the more relaxing, it, frankly, thinking about improv is a little bit, and, and I think this comes from ignorance, right? In that I don't uh, have experience with improv. I have an idea. I have a perception of what improv might be like, and that perception is giving me some anxiety right now. In that, like, I'm not <laughs> sure what I'm going to be asked to do. You know, it's whose line is it anyway? But with science, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, don't. That's not a good example to use. I. That's. I'm afraid what people think about is who line. Whose line is it anyway? But <laughs> Sarah, did you just notice that you improvised that answer? That you, question. I was gonna. I was just gonna say. Well, no. <laughs> no. Yes, you no? did. Did I? Yes. I would say this: the our, our podcast experience is very improv. We do not work from a script. We do not do a an don't give away all planning. the secrets. I know. Awesome. I know. It's it's like pulling back the curtain. I know. There is no wizard back here. <laughs> it's Sarah. It just isn't. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. That's true. That's true. There is no wizard. The problem with the perception of improv is the same problem we have with the with how the media presents everything. You get a distorted view of what it is. So the media view of improv is whose line is it anyway? That certainly is improv, but that is not probably what exactly what you're gonna be doing when you take an improv class. It is much more like what you're doing here as a podcast. It's what more like what you do in everyday life when you have a conversation with someone. Someone's gonna guide you through those things a little bit and they're going to if they're any good as a teacher they're going to show you how what you're doing already is going to come out as um into these improv skits so i know people are really afraid of it but i i don't i think the fear is is in general misplaced once you're out there and you, and you jump and you do it i think everyone pretty much enjoys it yeah it's also easier to say the word improv than it is to say please go be extemporaneous Yes. Oh, I don't like that word, Patrick. I don't know what that means. It's so vague. <laughs> exactly. Go be extra is what Patrick right. just said, right? Go That's be my extra. life. Go be extra. <laughs> um, so I, so, and maybe this is partly because like you said, I think about whose line is it anyway, because when I think about improv, I think about stand up comedy and doing mm. a bit which i will say i have entertained doing but then i have this anxiety about writing the jokes and how much work that's going to take so let's put a, <laughs> put a pin in that but so are there uh in your experience are the improv classes typically through like comedy venues or 
are there other types that I am just not aware of? There are improv teachers who teach some now both online and in person. They've gone mostly back to in-person, but they're still doing some online. They do tend toward the comedy side, but they don't, um, but a, there's a kind of a core principle of improv is that you don't try to be funny. If you try to be funny, you're pretty much going to be guaranteed to <laughs> fail. So it's not, this is not stand-up. And I would not recommend that a scientist try to do stand-up. That's a very different kind of thing. And it gets, people get really depressed when they try to do stand-up. And you're right, it's hard to write the jokes. It's hard to be there in front of an audience and trying to see if the jokes are landing and things. You're not, that's not what improv is. Improv is about listening to what the other person is saying and responding to it. And sometimes those, your responses might hmm. be funny and sometimes they're just real. And really the more real you can be, the more funny it's gonna be for the audience. But you're not trying to be funny. You're trying to be present and being real and responding in a real way to what the other person says. And because you're being present and real, it's sometimes funny because people, don't, people, aren't, people aren't like that, right? We have all these masks on. We have all these masks on and people do it and they don't say, they don't call it like it is. And now you're in the improv and you're gonna say exactly what it is. Yeah. You're gonna say, well, you're acting like an asshole right now. <laughs> and, and, they, and they say, cause you don't say that, but they are <laughs> acting like an asshole right now. <laughs> See, these I, I, are the classes we needed in grad school. Right? Definitely. I, what, the don't act like an asshole class? <laughs> I mean, lie. not limited I, to that. No, so this, this, and then as soon as Bruce said that, I was thinking about, because I, I study humor, um, right? I study humor in science communication. And I thought right away of like incongruity theory, right? And like violation of ex expectations. These are all jargony words for how humor theorists think about what makes something funny, right? And when I think about Bruce saying something like, um, what did you say exactly about like, don't be, don't be an asshole, right? Yeah, you're, you're, acting, you're acting like an asshole now, just labeling what they're doing. <laughs> right, right. Um, that is very incongruous with what I would expect, right, in this moment. Anyway, that was my little research brain tangent. <laughs> right, and so the great thing about improv is you don't have to analyze it. You don't have to say it's incongruity theory. You don't have to try to be incongruous. You just have to say what they're doing. You just have to react honestly to what they're doing hmm. without a filter on there. Hmm. And it's really not that hard. It's yeah. And it's relieving. It is really relieving. <laughs> it would be so wonderful if we could have honest conversations about so many issues with no Oh, no kidding, filter. right? I'm just thinking about this now in like the current climate, right? So, yes. so wonderful. So with that statement, Sarah, I wonder, Bruce, is that how you came to the idea to do a series of videos, let's say, not too long after the beginning of COVID, regarding talking to people, talking to the public about science and facts and how to be a better person as a scientist to talk to people who might not be so excited about it? You know, it's kind of that growth mindset again. I was looking for some way to build on what I did with the book and to reach a bigger audience. I really don't know how what audience the book is re is um, is reaching. I get a report every year from the publisher about how many books sold, and this will be the first year. This will be the first full year that it's been out, and so we know it's been translated into Japanese, and so there's going to be some royalties oh. from that translation. Cool. But that's the only 
kind of really positive thing I've heard. I don't know what the sales are. We sent it out for some a lot of reviews and not and most people who said they would re review it did not review it. The reviews that were done were very positive, but there was only like three of them. Hmm. So I don't really know what effect the book is having. And I'm looking was looking for a way to reach a bigger audience. I, I teach workshops at conferences, but you know, I'm very, I, I really believe in free, I, especially at my level, right? I don't want to charge for these things. What, what percentage of students do you think show up for a free workshop after mm. they've said they're going to sign up for it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. There is <laughs> <laughs> three. three percent. Patrick, your it's, answer it's, is it's, three. It's 3%. bigger than 3%. Okay. Yeah, this is 30%. so interesting because there is there, like there's a lot of social science yeah. right research around like value of something and like what is the uh like sliding scale of value essentially right because something that is free is often not considered as valuable as something right. that you have some charge for. Um, it's interesting because I think then also about how we incentivize survey participants right when we used to mail surveys sometimes you would send them something unique like a two dollar bill or something. Right, even a, a one dollar bill in in the mail with the survey is some kind of like, oh, now I feel like I probably should respond to this survey. Yeah, it yeah, does yeah. actually increase uh, response rates. I was, I was just going to say along those lines, you know, how many different uh, mail labels that do you have from uh, from places that are asking for money, or little pads of paper, or all those little things that they send you, right? That are like, hey, would you like to give a donation to? The humane society or whatever here's some mail labels i just thought of that when you were saying about that i really only keep the wisconsin ones sorry i know we just had a conversation that the university of michigan was in here as well but i am an, a wisconsin alum and so i only keep my wisconsin labels which i will say i looked it up the general uh the bachelor of general studies at university of michigan still exists which is so oh, does it? Oh, yes, i didn't know yeah, that it's so cool because you can interesting yeah so like you could create an interdisciplinary yep. um degree which is wonderful but of course you know i think about like whether like you have to have, you probably have to have some really good advice around like how to structure this kind of degree, you know? Um, I just think about there's so many undergraduate students, for example, where I work that, you know, I, and I think everywhere who don't always visit an advisor, right? Who are in a program, <laughs> pointing at himself, but who are in a program. But then if you have a general studies degree that is wide open and your requirements are half upper level and, you know, half lower division courses, you have so much choice that that it's almost possible to create something that's not coherent. Um, but I do love the flexibility uh, that comes along with that. I would be a vampire studies major. Yeah, for me, it worked real well. And I, yeah. I think there's, I, I would be very interesting to know more about the program at Michigan and how it's evolved and how they, how they see the students in it. I know from one of my history of art professors who was interviewed some years afterwards for one of the Michigan magazines. And she talked about how the students had changed in her experience. Mm. And she had said, kind of talked about our, the age that I was there when she was the youngest um, professor. And that, you know, she could just kind of point us in a direction and we go and we do that kind of thing. She said, now they need more, they need more guidance. And what I'm hearing from my colleagues now, from the students who come in who have gone through COVID and gone through the remote learning, is that they need a lot more than a little guidance. They need a lot more than a lot of guidance. They're having, they're really struggling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how the how the degree has affected the students over a period of time. Yeah. But we're kind of a long way from scientific communication here. 
Where yes, yeah, see, this is this is what <laughs> as I usual like tangent around the whole system. Um, but I do want to come back to you mentioned that the book has been translated to Japanese, which is fascinating. Um, in general, I think language is fascinating, but also you know I'm wondering then about the cultural aspects of the book and and how it plays mm -hmm. in Japan and whether the scientific endeavor, uh, you know, the sort of scientific institution in Japan is similar and so I'm just wondering about the the translation and how and if you have any sense of how that I don't I don't know anything about it it has only very relatively recently been translated um I think they finally finalized the agreement early in the year um, maybe even in February so I don't I don't know what really what's happened I still have the contact in Japan who had first asked me about the translation before I put them in contact with the publisher who holds the rights to the translation. We signed those rights over to the publisher when we agreed to publish with them. And so I could contact him and ask him how it's going and how he thinks about that. So it is kind of surprising, right? So the culture is a little different in Japan. I don't know in detail, but they obviously liked it. And they took the, they took the drawings. They specifically asked, could they use the same drawings? Oh, oh that's great. So, so they must have seen something they liked. So with that, it's being going to be translated is translated theoretically will be disseminated that'll be awesome what do you see where is it going in the u.s what is the book's life trajectory looking like i don't know how to evaluate that it's my first book or i, I did a couple i've done a there's something that i published privately and that's going nowhere so that's not a good um comparison so i don't really have a good answer though to that i would like to see it be used in more classes uh, you know, yeah, I, um, that's one of the reasons I want to do this podcast. And if I can do anything I can to promote the book and let people know it's out there, I think it's a pretty good book. I've read a lot of books on scientific communication. I don't think, I think it's one of the better ones on that because it's very practical. It's got exercises in it. It tries to use the, lead the student through a series of exercises in the different parts of the book. So they're actually doing things, just not getting the idea. It has a lot of examples in it. Um, it's written, I think, reasonably well and is light. And I just ho would hope that it's being going to be used in classes. I know it's used in some, but I don't know how many or where. It's that it's publicity, you know. So I can ask you, you know, you guys, you, you guys are my publicity. I mean, I really need people out there saying, look at this book and try to use it. And I appreciate anything that you can do, not because I want the money specifically. I mean, I'm, you know, I get a tiny bit of money from this. Because I, but I really care about science. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that ultimately what we're trying to do is get every scientist trained so that they can speak well to another scientist outside their field. And that means if they can do that, the distance between that and talking to the public is relatively small. And so it's gonna, if you get every scientist out there and they are capable of talking in an intelligent, intelligible way to the public, we're gonna over the long term solve the problem of scientific communication. Now it's a very long-term solution, but I think it is a solution. I, I thought it was really interesting that your book is targeted at scientists communicating with scientists, which I think is a place that oftentimes when we bring up science, science communication, people immediately jump to press releases and talking to your Uncle Harvey over Thanksgiving, right? That's the example that's always given. Explain it to your relatives at Thanksgiving, which is very important, as you said. I think it's it's extremely important, but I think people underestimate how difficult it 
communication can be between scientists, even in very closely related fields who, you know, in some ways there's some different things there, right? We assume that we know what people are talking about and the words that we use, but they're very different. And we assume that another scientist is going to be just inherently interested in the minutia of details that we, that we have. And they're going to be like, wow, this is so fascinating. And really that's not <laughs> Not true at all. If you don't, if you just jump right into the details, you know, anyone's going to tune out, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And scientists have to do that. Every scientist has to communicate with another scientist outside of their field. There are no exceptions to that. There are hundreds, thousands, you know, what percentage? 80% of scientists are never going to talk to the public under any circumstances. And so, you know, why make that your focus? Why is that the focus trying to reach that? 20% or 10% probably is more reasonable number of scientists that are ever going to talk to the public. Why is that the focus of all the work? Why shouldn't we be talking to 100% of the scientists and say, get better what you're doing? And guess what? We scientists might actually learn something in the process. We might actually be able to understand each other. <laughs> Maybe. That might be some good cross-fertilization. We might get ideas from somebody else in another field because we can finally understand what they're saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't understand Patrick and Jason most of the time. Me neither. <laughs> yeah, right. We're right in that boat too. Um, so I actually, I do want to come back to the, to the illustrations, which is Jason's yeah. um, wheelhouse here. So I'm just going to put Jason on the spot by mentioning oh, the illustrations man. and then say, Jason, go. Yeah, no, I really like the illustrations. And I wondered if you could, uh, a couple of things I'm interested in what, you feel the role that they serve in, in the book, but then I'm also interested to hear maybe just a little bit about what, what the process of working with an illustrator um, was like during the, during your book. Did you know, how did that go? Cause I think that's interesting. Well, let me first tell you how I met John Wagner and that might explain a little bit of how easy he was to work with. So there was a conference called SciTalk, Science Talk, Science hey. Talk. Yeah, and so they've changed their name now. What is it, Sarah? The um, Association of Science Communicators. I think their conference might still be called Science Talk, but they've changed the, so the organization also used to be called mm, Science right. Talk, but they have rebranded to the Association of Science Communicators, and that's going in the show notes. Very nice. So I was at the conference, and um, I think it was in 1999. No, it's not, no, 2019, I think. Uh, so it was just before COVID. And I went to a workshop by the group called Compass. And I don't know if you know those guys. So they do scientific, they teach scientific communication mainly for talking to the public. So they did a workshop there and I sat down next to this guy and he was taking notes on it. But his notes weren't notes. His notes were drawings. Right. He was making these very expressive drawings and maybe a little bit of text there, but not very much. And it kind of, as they went along, he was making this kind of mon montage of drawings on this. And I looked at it and said, whoa, <laughs> look at this. And I had just been approached about the book. And I said, um, actually, I think I contacted him afterwards. I got his contact there. And I asked him if he would consider doing illustrations for the book. And thank God he agreed. <laughs> I think we, you know, we could put John Wagner's website. I'll have to get it for you yeah. in the show notes later yeah, yeah. so you can see some of yeah. his other work. And you'll see some of the things, the kind of things, if you scroll down on his webpage, you'll see some of the kind of things he was drawing at the conference. So 
um, he said yes. And I said, I want something that's kind of Gerber-esque. It's going to be in, we did negotiate with the publisher that it could be in color. And then he took the text, he took, he took the um, draft of the, each chapter, and he looked for places where he could insert kind of a humorous drawing that illustrated the parts of the chapter. And I mostly took the place that he posts those, but a few of them I moved around. And then he also did some sketches. When he first was starting out, he started to do some sketches. And those ended up at the end of each chapter. And I added a little speech bubble and it said references to them. So at the end, there's a little yeah. tiny sketch of an octopus or something yeah. or, or a syringe needle or something. And there's a speech bubble coming out of it and it says references. So those were kind of his initial drawings on this. We sometimes talked about specific kinds of things that I wanted to do in, with the book. Um, for instance, we talked about diversity. So we did talk about having a, a diverse kind of characters in there. And we spent a long time on the cover trying to get the cover to look what we wanted to. And there's a, a black woman with a lab coat on it and cowboy boots and mm -hmm. what, you know, what she was gonna look like. And what <clears throat> we had a number of different drawings for that and different options for that. We wanted to include um, ideas of disability. So there's a character giving a poster who's in a wheelchair um, and we had to have clowns also. So there's a clown giving a poster on clowns at a conference. You know, there's a big, it's a big conference. And so there's a tiny little clown in, a, in one corner giving a, giving a poster on clowns. So we didn't, we even got the clown contingent in. That's great. It's very important. That's, uh, yeah, I really, I, uh, so sketch notes is sometimes what those are called when you're taking notes in kind of graphic slash, uh, you know, note form. And there's a bunch of really great examples. Um, I haven't seen, um, is it John Wagner? Right? Yes. Uh, I haven't seen his examples, but I'm, I'm excited to see that. I'll take a look in the, in the show notes. I really enjoyed the illustrations. I like, I like them because it, um, because I could, I could tell the attention, the thought that, that had gone into them in terms of, uh, in terms of representation, but also just in terms of, you know, the, the thematic com content and, making them not distracting, but still part of the, of the chapters uh, was really great. And I also liked them, uh, you know, because of their style is very approachable. And so that's something that in my work, I often talk about, um, you know, like the, the approachability of this cartooning, this kind of uh, doodling sketch kind of art is, is great. And I think that's a really great tool anyway. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I liked him immediately is that I, I saw that they were approachable and very, yeah. I, I never talked to John about that, but his work was just naturally that way. He has done some more formal drawings, but even those are on, on the approachable side. Yeah, that's um, great. Oh, sorry. Go I'm ahead, interested. No, I'm interested to pivot because there's another part that I really wanted. And I, I'm looking at this in your notes. I didn't make that that far in the book yet, but um, a, a particular place that I've loved to rant and I won't rant this time, but, um, posters, your, your, your take on poster <laughs> presentations. Um, I'd be really interested to hear because I think that's a, you know, oftentimes a, such an opportunity, I'm not going to rant, um, and such a sore point with, uh, with scientists. So I'm, I'm interested, I'll step back and, and funny story. I did send the better posters, uh, link to my undergraduate student who is preparing a poster Yes, this project. So, yeah, that's great. I mean, the um, Mike Morrison's work on better posters is absolutely great, and he was just a little bit ahead of my work on it, which is good because then I could include his work in the book, 
And he actually suggested the, I have a better poster example in the book. He put me in touch with the author of that poster. And it is really a brilliant poster. I mean, it, you'll have to look at the book and see the example of better poster, but it's just done remarkably well. It's, and it's on a very technical subject. Um, it's on the use of a different way of encoding information in computers, a different way of, besides floating point, there's another kind of way, they're called posits. And he actually explains it very, very nicely in the, mm. in the poster. So, and he lays it out great. So <clears throat> I think there are two things. First, the essence of um, Michael Morrison's work, I would say is clarity of presentation. And he makes, uh, that's especially evident by the fact that in the very center of the poster, he has for the original better posters, he has a big blank space colored with a color, sometimes with one image, a very simple image related to the main point of the poster, and then a title that is explanatory, uh, that explains the main point of the poster, the takeaway part of the poster. That goes in the main part of the poster. So I'm not gonna explain the rest of that one way of working, but that's the basic idea. That real clarity you can get then, you can get the main point just by walking by the poster. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about what that is, you're looking at that poster not as text. You're looking at that poster more as a picture. And so that's what I would say is I would say posters are pictures, they are not text. And we should be thinking of them as a picture. And when we're thinking of layouts of the poster, we need to be thinking of them as a picture. So Mike Morrison has done that essentially intuitively there by he's, well, I don't wanna say intuitively because he has worked in um, user experience design as mm. a web designer for many years. And so I wouldn't mm. say he's done it intuitively. He thought about it a lot, very hard. So he's got that center part of the picture and he's got that center part of the poster and he's put something very important there. We can also use that center part of the poster in other ways. We can put graphics there, but it's gotta be graphics that very clearly show what you want the audience to take away from this. And I off, one graphic you know, is often very good. I've got some examples where people did multiple graphics and had a flow through the poster. It's harder to do that, but they're still looking at the poster more as an image rather than as places to put text. If there's one thing you should never put on your poster, it's an abstract. Your poster is an abstract. There is no reason to put an abstract on an abstract unless your poster is so bad that you figure that no one is gonna understand it. And so you damn well better put an abstract there so that there's something they can read to understand. If you're doing that, please start over again. That's Write great. a better title and rethink your poster because you don't need an abstract on it. Oh, that's so funny. I'm gonna go throw out my graduate school posters now. <laughs> it's true though, and it's amazing because you see these better posters and, you know, <clears throat> sorry, we started seeing it at conferences some years ago, not too many years ago. And you walk by and you're like, oh, I know what that poster is about. I care greatly about that. Or you walk by and you say, oh, yep, not in the field, whatever. I have 2,000 other posters mm -hmm. to get to. And it's really true how easy they are to look at. And I hope that they get adopted because they do such a good job of succinctly capturing the point to determine your interest and then directing your eye beautifully. Like they're using... Yeah, I mean, based on his experience, right, they use that F layout from most design principles and just apply it wonderfully. So you're like, boop, boop, boop. oh, I know what I'm doing, moving on. And the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, my posters are junk now. I need to reevaluate all these. And so I 
subconsciously apologize to anyone who tried to get through a poster run in the past. Yeah, so let's, exp let's explain the F layout for a second there. So the F scanning pattern is a pattern that um, was discovered when people looked at websites. So people did eye tracking work on websites. And there's a citation in the book that has the original um, research on this. And I, I'm afraid I don't remember it off the top of my head. <clears throat> but it's there when the, in the poster chapter. So they found that people, when they're looking for information on a web page, will scan left to right across the top. And then that's the first part of the F, the top bar. And then they'll start scanning down the page, that's the upright on the F, looking for more relevant information. And when they see a little bit more, they'll scan over to the right, left to right to read it. That's the crossbar of the F, and then down again a little bit. Mm. So they find this F f-shaped pattern throughout um, throughout web page design and people try to take advantage of it they try to design their web pages so that it, it matches that kind of natural behavior of the audience i <clears throat> used um, some simulations there's a company that does eye tracking simulations so they've ground truth they ground truth to their ai eye tracking software on real eye tracking data and so you can give them some web page or something you want them to look at. They work with major companies on this and they'll run analysis on this and they'll show you where people are predicted to look on this. And some of the posters that we have in the book, you see the F-shaped pattern coming up. So even there, it's most likely taking place. Interesting. But Sarah, I might've interrupted you. No, no, no. And actually now that you uh, just talked about that, I, I'm coming back to the cultural question, right? Because uh, I don't actually know whether they read left to right in Japan, but in a lot of other character-based languages, the uh, direction of reading is in the opposite direction. I'm I'm very curious about this now because, right? So the better poster idea, I mean, in general, like science is an endeavor, the internet and all these things are very Western centric, right? Um, yes. The internet in particular is very US centric and we see this coming out in like AI, for example, now. But yeah, mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm so curious now about whether um, that cultural difference, I mean, that cultural difference must matter, right? For posters. I wanna go to a poster session in a different language and see that would what be interesting. that looks like, yeah. Interesting to yeah. see, of course. So I did a postdoc in Jerusalem. So, and of course Hebrew is written uh, and read right to left. And so I had a conversation with one of the uh, assistant professors there at the university I was at, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, about this over coffee or uh, a social time one time. And we were, <clears throat> so I know also, even that at that time, a long time ago, I knew from my history of art training that people tended to read images in the West, um, artistic images, left to right. Mm. Now, that's not the only thing that they do, but there is that tendency. And so if you're making a painting, you want mm. to put an image, yeah. a stop on the right side mm. so that when a person's eye tracks along it from the left, they hit a tree or a, something that's on the left, on the right, and their eye is drawn back or thrown mm, back to the left so that they stay more time in the picture. And eye tracking stuff shows that. Now, other things change this, so bright colors change it. You can, you can play with it in different ways with forms and things, but that's the basic principle in the West. So he said, he asked me, what the, what's the situation in Hebrew? And I, 
I, I don't know anything more, really more now than I did then, but like Sarah, I suspect that if you spoke only Hebrew, you would read things from right to left and you would reverse all of those things that we're saying mm -hmm. on here. Yeah. It, it, except, you know, if they they read only Hebrew, but they've grown up looking only at Western art, which is all predicated on reading from left to right. So, you know, yeah. I, so it's, they're interesting questions. I, and there's probably someone um, in Israel or in other right to left cultures that have looked at this, but I'm not aware mm. of the research. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because science too is so such a Western thing, right? That, you know, most publications are in English or the publications that we think of as whatever, reputable, high impact factor, all these things, they publish in English, right? So we almost force, right? Cultures to, to be in this left to right mindset when we are talking about science, which is just fascinating. Um, I want to, and, and I guess this brings up the, we talked to Julia Krolik, who is an information designer. That is her title. She is an artist that communicates um, science through design and design principles, and it's wonderful. Um, and I'm actually working, I was uh, referred to another information designer. I'm working on, on putting some of my research findings into these kinds of little like infographics, right, based on design principles. Um, which so and so this is like a really exciting new area, I think, of science communication. This addition of art into STEM is really fascinating. Um, but I have one more question and then I will let Patrick and Jason take it away and, and we'll wrap it up because we're getting to the 50 minute mark oh. here, as I noticed. Um, is that who did you have in mind when you wrote the book? So, you know, in communication, we think quite, we think a lot about our audiences, right? And our objectives. And we've talked quite a bit so far about the objectives that you have for your book. But did you have a specific audience in mind? Or were you thinking more broadly about scientists? Because, um, you know, somebody who I could see how an undergraduate student could benefit from this as much as a graduate student might, or even a scientist right, who, whatever, faculty position, um, industry scientist, but I'm wondering if you had someone in mind specifically when you wrote this. I, I did, but, it, and it's kind of brings up a problem that I'll explain as I explain who I had in mind. So I had a graduate student and a young, and postdocs and young assistant professors kind of in mind for this, people who are just out there early and learning to communicate. And the problem is, those people, especially the graduate students, are only going to do something if their professor says to do it. And so the problem is, how do you, how do you write a book that's addressed to the graduate students so that they can help, they can get the help they need, but you have to convince the professor to do it. And I'm not sure I've succeeded in that, but I tried to write a different book than you see out there a lot, which seemed to be written more on an intellectual level. So you can read the book and you can understand the concepts that they're trying to get, but there aren't enough examples to show you how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I tried to put lots and lots of examples. I put um, even problems in the book where, you know, you have to turn to the back page and look at what my answer is, but I'm trying to get the, the student to do the, to do the work themselves, to think about how they would, let's say we're writing a title. So there's a section where I've got a bunch of abstracts and I say, write a better title than, than mm -hmm. the one that's here already for this for this abstract. And then I, in the back of the chapter, I say, well, here's how I would do it. And I explain why I would do it that way. Mm 
what I'm hoping that they have done it in the process. So that's really students kind of centered. So maybe a professor would look at that and say, well, I can use this in my class because it's got some examples in there that the student can use and I don't have to do all the work for them, yeah. et cetera. So that's, that's kind of what I was thinking, but I think, it's a real, I think it's a real problem and why it's hard to get SCICOM accepted in the university system is because you've got those two audiences. You've got the students who really need it and you've got the professors who say, everything's okay. We don't need to do this. <laughs> So I, ha I actually have many more questions for you, but uh, I think importantly, you chose the word concisely to put in the title of your book. And I don't think we've really touched on that that much. Why concisely? What's important about being concise with the message that you're trying to get across with science communication in the book? Yeah, well, there's a famous quote by Einstein if you can't explain it simply, you do not understand it well enough. And I think that really says the essence of what I'm trying to get at with when I say concisely. And so if <clears throat> this really comes to the workshops that I often offer for um, scientific societies. The first workshop I very often do is a workshop on titles. So I ask the students to take abstracts. I have a bunch of abstracts prepared that they can work on. And um, I put them in groups and I ask them write better titles for this. And the title I say should convey the central meaning that you want your audience to take away from this abstract or if it was a poster from your poster. Right, same thing that Mike Morrison is trying to do with the title of the poster or the takeaway message right in the center of the better poster. And that is really transforming for the students because they haven't thought about that. They've tried to write, I mean, in the worst cases, you know, cute titles, titles with jokes in them, titles that um, show that they're really smart, titles with lots of jargon in them. And all of the, none of these titles really communicate with the audience. So you can get across to the, the students that they should be communicating with the audience, not by telling them or lecturing them that they have to do this, but by saying, write a title for this abstract that says what, the ab what you want the audience to know. And they start to get the idea, oh, there's an audience there. I should be talking to the audience. I should be communicating something in this. And that's about, that's about being concise. That's about taking, so the abstracts I take are almost always from nature. So they're really pretty good abstracts. Mm -hmm. And so that's taking something that's pretty good and trying to make it even better and to condense it down. So in that process, they have to really understand their work. The student has to really understand their work. They have to understand it at a much deeper level than they're usually, uh, nor, nor, <clears throat> that they normally do. So I, when I talk to people who teach graduate students, they say things like this, you know, the graduate students are great at the technical aspects of their work. They know how to do all the techniques, they can explain them, you know, they can defend them, they can tell you why they did this and how it didn't work and what worked and all other stuff. But when you ask them to explain the significance of the work, they're at a loss. They don't right. know how to, they don't know how to do that. And that's what being concise is about. It's cutting through all of that stuff, all of that, stuff that is not interesting to another scientist or to the public that they had to learn that they have to be experts at not saying you can't you can cut any corners there you have to do that it's just not what the other another scientist is interested in it's what your major major advisor is in it's what he's interested in or she's interested in it's what your committee's interested in and you got to do that but then you got to be able to talk to other people so that's what the concise does it makes them do that it makes them understand their work at a different level. That's I think great. we have a good title. You got to be able to talk to other people. 
<laughs> is that yep. the title for this episode? I think it's gonna be. Yes. <laughs> and with that, now that we have a title at the very end of the right, episode, this is a late one for our title, it, right? Yeah, yeah, usually it's I'd say probably first quarter, but I'm gonna go on ahead and say thank you so much to Dr. Bruce Kirchhoff for coming to talk to us and tell us about the book and make us better at SciComm and ensure that we know that we're doing improv and communicating with our audience. I, I'm super excited about improv now. I'm, yep. I'm interested in looking into that. That's what's up. So please yeah. go check out his book, Presenting Science Concisely. It's on Amazon. You should go buy it and then you should tweet your response to it so that we know what you think. And uh, hopefully it makes you a better science communicator. And with that, thank you, Planet Psycom. Tune in next time.